Hello, welcome to this month's episode of Choosing the Big Screen, your movies review and discussion podcast. I am one of your reviewers, Joshua Tracy. And I am Corwin Heller. And uh, welcome back. We had a long hiatus because we have been busy and doing two podcasts is tough, but we're back. Back in the New York roof. And we're, we're, we're gearing up for Oscar season because it's once again upon us as the awards are creeping up as they do every year. So we're going to try to get back into the groove of things. Uh, but to uh, we still have to talk about the shows, the, the movies we picked last time around. So today we will be discussing the uh, 2006 film, The Last King of Scotland, and the 1999 film, Man on the Moon. Corwin, do you have a place you'd like to start? No. All right. Well, uh, let's start with Last King of Scotland because I watched it the most recently. All right, Sam. Cool. So Last King of Scotland from 2006 uh, was directed by Kevin McDonald. It was written for the screen by Peter Morgan and Jeremy Brock based on the novel by Giles Falden. Foden. Sorry, Giles Foden. Uh, it stars James McAvoy, Forrest Whitaker, and Gillian Anderson. Um, also, shout-outs to Kerry Washington, as EDM means wife. Uh, this film had an estimated budget of $6 million. That's it? Man, oh, Uganda must be cheap. Uh, a cumulative worldwide gross of $48 million, so a raring success. Uh, this film had a tagline of... Charming, magnetic, murderous. Okay. Uh, sure. Not yeah, great. Right. Not terrible. It's I'll fine. Take it. Yeah. Uh, this film was nominated for and won a single Oscar, and that was for best performance by an actor in a leading role for Forrest Whitaker. Uh, this film is about. Uh, based on the events of the brutal Ugandan dictator Idi Amin's regime as seen by his personal physician during the 1970s. This was my pick, so I'll get us started. I have not seen this movie in forever, Uh, and it was my recollection of it is chaos, like just a lot of chaos. And I remember clearly that Forrest Whitaker was good in this. He won an Oscar for this, but I really didn't remember the performance very much because I mean, it's, it's especially if you're watching it when you're younger, it, it, it's a, there's a lot mm-hmm. happening in this movie and a lot of what happens is both large, very, very large, big things like all of the political killings, there's bombings, there's, you know, guns and shooting, there's a, a child and, uh, and, 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 and an abortion. Like there's a lot of big topic things events that happen and there's also all the subtleties of the way the relationship between uh james mcavoy and uh uh fucking forrest whitaker or uh nick and idi amin uh kind of move as as that relationship progresses and and how you're supposed to take those changing tides or even just how forrest whitaker addresses james mcavoy and how that changes as he needs it to change or as really as he wants it to change, uh, that be, he being Idi Amin, 
And, you know, getting to kind of watch this movie and feel that shift is really, it's done so well. Because in the beginning, when you first meet the Idi Amin character, he is amiable and, you know, you get the very sense, the sense very early on that Uganda is not a great place. And, you know, you see all the pomp and circumstance happening around like the village and you go, all right, yeah, you know, it's probably going to suck like, you know, from a Western perspective, politicians suck anyway. They're all the same, blah, 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 blah. And it never really clearly for me hits like when it exactly changes. But the build is so successful in that you're even though you you know, Idi Amin's a bad guy from maybe history class or just the fact that they don't often make these types of movies about really good people. That was my first thought just then of like, hey, you're watching this movie. I think it's a pretty fair assumption. Shit's going to go down. It's a movie. Right. Uh, the transition is still so slow. And, you know, hearing James McAvoy's justification for everything, you, you, you almost fa- fall for it a little bit in the beginning and don't see the transition until, you know, people that were in the movie before are no longer in the movie <laughs> because they got killed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it just does such a phenomenal job in that and Forrest Whitaker is obviously a huge part of it and just does a phenomenal job. Uh, yeah, it's just, it's amazing. Corn, I'm excited to hear what you think. Yeah, this was, uh, this was the first time I've seen this film. Uh, I tried watching it as a child with my parents. And when I walked into the living room to sit on the couch and watch with them, they said, you're a fucking child. Get the fuck out of here. And I was like, Oh, see, my parents and- never once did that to me. <laughs> Uh, they did it for that movie and they did it for Charlie's Angels and those were really the only two and both were very different movies. Oh, dude, I started watching sex scenes with my parents when I was like 12. Like it was way too young. Yeah. Yeah. And oh, Gerard. Like, yeah. He has. Like, I remember watching. If, if, have you ever seen Once Upon a Time in New York? No. Once Upon a Time in America? No. Yes. Whichever one Robert no. De Niro's in. Once Upon a Time in Brooklyn. Who the know. fuck knows? It's directed by Sergio Leone. Robert De Niro's in it. My dad wanted to watch it, and he said he had watched it when he was a younger and forgotten it. And there was like a brutal rape scene in that movie. And I was like 14. <laughs> and man, let me tell you, that was an uncomfortable like three full minutes. Good. That's good to know. Thanks, Gerard. Oh, yeah. I'll go watch it. super awkward anyway please continue um man this was uh this was a pretty intense movie all around um i watched it at work uh i don't recommend watching this movie at work especially when they show a lot of mutilated bodies at one point um really just the one of Kerry washington that was really like i need to slam i just wanted to like throw that monitor across the room in case somebody happened to walk by. But regardless, um, man, Forrest Whitaker just hits a fucking grand slam with this. He is so good. Um, I didn't know James McAvoy was in it, but I thought he did a really good job, too, of portraying the fear that comes with, uh, hey, I'm just out of college. I'm here. I'm going to have a great time, have fun in Uganda. He basically was everything that he, you know, I mean, accused him of, of just, 
coming to Uganda, having a good time, fucking around, and then going about his life like nothing ever happened. Um, just take and give nothing back. And man, just the the realization and fear that comes with, uh, oh, there's consequence to becoming the close-knit advisor of an absolutely batshit insane warlord. That shit's real. And my life is very real. And it's very much in danger. Um, boy, that was really fun to watch. I just thought this was just an excellent movie all around. There really wasn't a whole lot you know, that stood out to me in an amazing way. Like, it's not like the cinematography was jaw-dropping. It's not like the writing was jaw-dropping. It's not like there was any, you know, tangible aspect of this that made it a, you know, truly special film. I think it's just one of those where the sum of its parts are, or it's greater than the sum of its parts. Right. And I, I, I think the point about uh, James McAvoy, which, you know, Edie, I mean, calls him out on later in the movie of uh, essentially you're using this nation as as a as a prop in some fantasy. You know, this is you, you're, you're not taking this this country seriously. Um, and he he used it in, in part because that, that it was true. Absolutely true. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and he also used it to be manipulative. But it's a really salient point that I really I absolutely did not recall from this movie and has really stuck with me since since I, I, I watched it in my most recent viewing, because I think oftentimes it's like you ever just see a picture from somebody you kind of know on like Instagram or Facebook and it's them with like a bunch of little black kids in Haiti or, you know, somewhere in Africa because they're doing like a mission thing. And it fe- that picture just feels so wrong to take. You know what I'm yeah. talking about? Mm-hmm. I've seen those and it's just like, it makes me feel like you did this for clout and yeah. not because you genuinely want to make a difference in the world. Right. Or you want to make a difference in the world, mostly so you can tell people you did something to make a difference in the world. Right. Like you did this to take a picture with very skinny, emaciated little black kids. And that's not the point of doing this stuff. And that very much so feels like James McAvoy's character. Like he is that guy. He did it in part because he wanted to get away from his stodgy upper class Scottish life. But he also was doing it because he didn't he didn't take it seriously. He didn't care, really, because if he did, he wouldn't have joined Idi Amin's uh, essentially, I guess, his cabinet. Uh, he would have stayed with the mission work as mm-hmm. that was the you know, that was the key point for Jillian uh, Anderson's character, which was, you know, she was like, why the fuck are, are you doing this? And then she let him miss that bus and and have to deal with the consequences of his actions because he wasn't there for the right reasons. He -hmm. was there to fuck and to party and to have a good time and not be in Scotland where his dad wasn't cool and the, the patients weren't cool and it wasn't a vibe. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's literally the first thing he does when he gets there, he fucks. It's the first thing he does when he's alone with, Sarah at the um, hospital. 
he tries to fuck her. It's the first thing he does when he's alone with the wife of his boss. Tries to, well, I guess, first time he's alone with the wife of his boss when his her child's not actively right. having an epileptic seizure. But regardless, he thinks with his dick and very much not anything else. <laughs> um, it's um, it's ridiculous to say the least. Uh, he is not. He is not someone with above-average critical thinking skills. I think that's a kind way to say it. Um, and it's it's nice having that naturally flawed of a character. Yeah, I mean, to the point where it, it's it's tough to root for him. And that's one of the other things I, I kept thinking about because, you know, this movie was made in 2006, we're 15 years removed from 2006, you know, mm-hmm. and I think the perspective I have on this movie now is very different than I think I would have had it if I had watched this in 2006, like as me, you know, like as a 27 year old adult, because one of the first things I, I thought about when the movie started up, which is that, uh, ah, you know, interesting choice to have a movie about Uganda and Uganda's history and a Ugandan dictator and the, how that affects the people of Uganda take place from the perspective of a white dude. Uh, Cause that's kind of weird. Yeah. And I thought this movie was about Scotland. <laughs> yes. This is a big, everyone with this, with the classic Scottish brogue <laughs> in the, the classic deserts of Scotland. Uh, and you know, the, the fact that James McAvoy's character, Nicholas really, I mean, directly causes the death of several people. And oh, only yeah. escapes because a black man sacrifices his life for him for like no reason. Yep. And the black man does it and he says it uh, uh, because he says like he says they'll believe you. You're white. Yeah. yeah. And well, it, 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 those are points that it would absolutely would have been lost on me a few years ago. Um, but that make this film even more interesting of a view today. Mm hmm. And it it absolutely does hold true today. And it's absolutely something that watching this when it came out, watching this if it was made in 1990 or even 1980 or watching this 20 years from now, the message changes not zero, not at all. I mean, can you disagree? No, will no. This, and, and arguably, I, will this ever change? No. Uh, uh, well, you'd hope, but, but you know, of course, yeah. probably not. And as, as I'm talking now, I just kind of realized that that was part of the point of the movie um, is that this movie takes place from the perspective of a white guy, because that's probably the only way you'd get a white audience to care about what happened to the people of Uganda. That was kind of the point. That's sad. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's fucking sad. Uh, And, you know, because really this film doesn't get too far into all of the killings that happened around the the country of Uganda during this regime. The film shows that at the end, uh, somewhere around 300,000 people have were killed directly by the Idi Amin regime, uh, with that number being potentially as high as 500,000 people. 
which you really you don't see too much in the way of mass killings. You see the individual people, um, a handful, you know, the people who were directly close and you kind of like glean and get senses of how much it is from some of the other characters who say, hey, this guy's killing a bunch of people. It's really bad. Mm -hmm. And as you see what happens to the people, you know, you go like, oh, shit, you know, this is happening to a lot of people. And I, I think that ended up being pretty effective because as horrible as this is to say, uh, when a bad thing happens to too many people, I think it's easier for us to gloss over as people. And I think we see this today, like with COVID, like 700,000 Americans have died. And it's almost too big of a number for people to wrap their head around and actually care about. Yeah, it's such a massive amount of death and destruction that it's too big for people to truly comprehend. So it stops adding a difference. The more, like the larger the number gets, the more people should care and the more people should be up in arms and, and just, you know exactly what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And like normalize it, it, it does nothing anymore. Right. And I, I think if you show it could be a hundred thousand, 500,000, a million, all of those numbers mean the same. And it's like, it's like, think about the difference between like, uh, I don't know. I'm trying to think like a, a, a John Wick movie where, oh my God, how many fucking bodyguards die in those fucking movies? A billion. Like in one movie, we've got to be talking about a kill count north of a hundred people for, mm-hmm. uh, for, for John Wick. You know what I mean? And if, in, at that point, they're just bodies. You know what I mean? They're they're not even human. They're just bodies. And the problem is when you get that macro of scope, it loses some significance. And in the instance, when you're trying, when when you're trying to convey something as important as, I mean, like the genocide of a people, you don't want to lose the significance. You know, if you show mass executions, at what point you just go like, ah, yeah, damn, there's like six dudes we never knew the name of. They're mm-hmm. dead now. And again, horrible, horrible. That, that is part of, I think, how we experience a, a viewing of that type of stuff. But it, I, I think that's what ends up happening. And so you get having more focused films on individual people like this movie or like Schindler's List, where, where you really get, you know, a, a handful of people that, that you, you, you know, see regularly and can extrapolate out that pain across the number that they show you on the screen at the end of the movie, it makes it a little bit easier to, I think, have that, that sympathy or empathy. Whereas going with the, with the larger scale approach would be harder to grasp. Mm-hmm. Still never seen it. It's good. I know it's sad. I figured there's not many happy Holocaust movies. Jojo Rabbit, actually. It had a happy ending. Weird dance number yeah. at the end. Yeah. Yeah. Also, Life is Beautiful is, I guess, an attempt at a happy Holocaust movie, but fuck that movie to pieces. This movie sucks. No. I, I know it won a bunch of Oscars. Fuck that movie. Movie can suck my balls. Um, I'm unfamiliar. It's around. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Uh, 
I think that's most of what I really took away from do you, I don't. Do you have any any other big thoughts on on the film? Um, no. I, I want to make sure that we're we're moving along a little bit. Cor and I are doing it back to back today, so we're both getting a little hoarse. Uh, all right. So then, final rating review. This is my movie. I oh will God, start. I forgot we do this. Yeah. Right. Um. This, I think, again, it not only does a phenomenal job of showing a lot of the horror of this time, it also does a really good job of showing the hope that needed that was existing in this nation at this time. Because when we think of oftentimes places ruled by dictatorship, ruled by fear and, and, and governed by monsters, you know, those are places where there's also a great amount of hope from the people that their suffering will end. And that that's oftentimes what leads to people occasionally backing horrible people, which is just like, fuck, fuck. Everything is awful. Something's got to change. Let's dance in the street for Idi Amin. Oh, my God, he's he's the worst. He's a he's a horrible, horrible monster. But we, they dance in the street for him because, God, you got to cling to something. Mm-hmm. And you get a feeling from Same some as, of the people uh, what we talk about with the Mets every time we talk about him. <laughs> Ah, the Mets step right up and cream the Mets. Um, anyway, you saw it from people within within the Idia means government as well in in the beginning parts. So, you know, there were people who seemed as though they genuinely wanted to help, and that got outweighed over time by greed and fear and power. And you know, to to have this movie do a slow burn, not from the perspective of Idi Amin and have it be from someone experiencing Idi Amin directly and the uh, implications of his actions directly or even indirectly in the case of what happens with Kerry Washington's character makes us a really effective viewing for how these types of uh, regimes, I guess, go over time and bringing a really personal touch to, to, to the stories that it's actually trying to tell you. And it does so with some phenomenal acting uh, and really very tight pacing, I'll also say. Mm -hmm. For for a two hour plus movie, this was this moved quick. Again, I uh, I watched it at work, so it's uh, hard for me to argue uh, it went by quick. Um, Oh, uh, sorry. Real quick. Uh, uh, Four, four, four and a half, four stars. Gotcha. Four and a half or four. You decide. You at home, you decide. Mm, okay. Four. Okay. <laughs> um, I will say I agree with all your points. I thought it was a very well-paced movie, well-made movie. The story flows incredibly well, and it's a very natural progression. Progression. Um, I gotta say, there just really wasn't anything that blew me away. Uh, I'm gonna give it a three and a half. I loved Forrest Whitaker. I really liked James McAvoy, but at the end of the day, it just there really wasn't anything that blew me away. And I don't know if it's just because I haven't really watched a movie in a couple weeks, so I don't know what I was expecting or if watching it at work wasn't the best environment for me to do this. Um, if any of my employers are listening, I was working very hard today and I'm sorry. Um, but yeah, I'm three and a half. 
All right. Fair enough. Let's talk then about the 1999 film Man on the Moon, uh, which was directed by Milos Forman, written by Scott Alexander and Larry Karajewski. Uh, It stars Jim Carrey, Danny DeVito and Gary Becker. Also, shout outs to a prominent role for uh, fucking God damn it. Paul Giamatti. There we go. Saved at the end. Uh, This one had an estimated budget of eighty two million dollars. Jesus, that's going to be all actor salary. Um, Yeah, gross worldwide of forty seven million. So that was a box office flop. Wow. Um, God damn. Uh, yeah. All right. So this movie had an, uh, had a tagline of the story of the man, the myth, the misunderstanding. Yeah. 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 Uh, it had no major award wins nor nominations. Uh, uh, it, no, uh, it was nominated for a Golden Globe for Best Motion Picture, Comedy or Musical, and won a Golden Globe for Jim Carrey for Best Actor in a Motion Picture, Comedy or Musical. Uh, I'm seeing if there's anything else interesting here. Not really. So, but Golden Globe, that's something. So that's, that's the uh, participation award of major awards. Uh, <laughs> so, so, so mean. <laughs> it's very important. I'm sorry. Uh, this film is about the life and career of legendary comedian Andy Kaufman. This was Corwin's pick, so take it away. Woohoo! Uh, I had never seen any Andy Kaufman comedy. I've never seen any of his specials. I haven't seen any of his work before this. Um, honestly, I wanted to watch uh, Jim and Andy, The Great Beyond, and then realized I never saw the movie it was kind of based around. Um I guess in one word to describe this, I can only really say that it's brilliant. Uh, Not necessarily the way the movie is made itself, but just Andy Kaufman is fucking brilliant. Um, I just was kind of not let down, but I didn't really know what to expect going into the film or what, how the film was going to be structured, what it was going to be about, something, you know, like that. And then just watching him work and just always being off guard and never knowing what to expect and just always being surprised is, again, exactly what he was intending. And just what blew me away was how effective he was at always, always having that sleight of hand, always being able to faint his way into getting a reaction from the audience and just his ability to control people's emotions, control their reactions, just an unbelievable performer. Um, And I just don't know how you could have anyone else other than Jim Carrey play that part. Yeah. I mean, Jim Carrey really apparently very, very hard, uh, strongly petitioned for this role because Kaufman was such a huge influence upon him. Uh, And you know, Kaufman's a really weird part of performance history in the best way because they had to come up with the term performance art for what he was doing. There wasn't a word or a phrase for what he was doing before he started doing it. And 
I think it's difficult to truly appreciate how hard that is to do. We see it in music like once a generation, you know, there's a new genre that comes out. You know, there was no hip hop and then Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five came around and then boom, there was hip hop, you know, and, and, right. and you know, you, you know, there there was there wasn't punk music. And then the clash gets very popular. There was other punk before the clash, but the clash gets popular. And now everyone knows what punk is. And but it's much harder to do that in other areas. You don't really often find new genres of film. You don't usually find new genres of comedy. And to be able to do that is. I I mean, you have to have a brain like nobody fucking else's. And that was Andy Kaufman. And that's what makes, you know, Watching this, honestly, that's what makes calling him a comedian very challenging because he insisted himself until he died that he was not a comedian. He insisted he was a song and dance man. Uh, and really, if you look at what he does, he he says it's for laughs, but none of it's funny. You know, it's for, it's for laughs. his laughs. Right. It's it's for it's for his laughs. It's because the confusion that people feel feeds him. And makes it amusing for him. So none of it's jokes. You know, it's not like he's doing something goofy and hilarious to make everybody in whatever setting he's in actually laugh. He's doing it to elicit a whole new reaction of confusion and frustration. And being able to achieve that is to him what's funny, which is amazing. <laughs> you know, like it's like the, the, the part of the film where he talks about his special. And he wants the uh, the 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 tape to uh, mm-hmm. to sputter. And even though he's not going to be in the room, just to know that people are going to get up to try to adjust their television sets to help fix the tape is enough. And then you, you see a small payoff scene later on right after that, where it's exactly what happens. But the fact that even though he can't see it, knowing that he can get people to get up and adjust their television sets because he's fucking with them is enough to make it worth it for him. Mm-hmm. And that's amazing. Unbelievable. Yeah. And I get why there is so much intrigue around what happened to Andy Kaufman. But my goodness, could it have ended in a more perfect way for him to feel satisfied with dying of cancer. Granted, there's no way anyone could ever feel satisfied with passing away at the age of 35 from such a terrible illness. But you know he received so much satisfaction from the fact that nobody really knows if it's an Andy Kaufman joke or this is truly an excruciatingly painful, you know, life-changing event but his legacy is always going to be that what if. And I know he is feeling just a certain amount of joy knowing that that legacy exists. Yeah, and you know, the movie doesn't touch on it, uh, but like Kaufman was not just not a smoker. He was he was like, I think, a vegan uh, or at least a vegetarian. Like He was very, very health conscious, not a drug person at all. You know, mm-hmm. and so for him to still die so young 
of lung cancer of all things is so just wildly improbable. Um, and what the movie does so well uh, is it is it really manages to demonstrate to you as time progresses how much Kaufman tries to compound his confusion for people, you know, like when he first wrestles that one woman that ends up becoming his girlfriend wife. I don't yes, really know. Girlfriend um, often never married. Sure. But there's so much doubt when you're watching that about whether she's an actress or not. Mm-hmm. You know, like when you're watching, you've gotten far enough into the film that, you know, well, he's up to something. Well, in this but you film, don't know if it's is. genuine. But f- fuck you. <laughs> also, not really. That's Courtney Love. She's not known for her acting. Yeah, she's known for killing Kurt Cobain. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, you know, even beyond that, when he starts fucking with the characters, you thought when you thought that you were getting to see how the jokes get made. You know, there, there's a, there's a scene where he's, you know, tells Courtney Love, like, I'm going to marry whatever woman beats me in the ring and you're going to come beat me in the ring. And you think, ah, all right, got it. So now now I'm seeing the planning of the jokes. And then that doesn't pan out either because you're never in on the joke in the movie. And that's one of the things it does so fucking well is it constantly makes you think that you get to be a part of it, too. And you never are. But it does a really good job of making you think you will be. And does an even better job of showing you you never are. Even the last shot of the movie, when uh, Tony Clifton is doing a performance and you, you know, it introduces that concept of doubt of is Kaufman dead? Is he alive? What's up? And you think to yourself, oh, no, he can't be dead. It, it, it's got to be Paul Giamatti. And then the last face that the movie shows you is Paul Giamatti sitting in the audience. And then you have to realize this is a whole different fucking third person. And I will never know what's happening. And I will never know what's mm-hmm. real. That's amazing. Yeah, that's really fucking insane. And it does it throughout the entire film. Like when his family starts picking apart the doctor in the hospital, like a doctor wouldn't wear those shoes. He's not even mm-hmm. wearing the doctor's shoes. <laughs> and it makes you it makes you start to doubt whether he's dying of cancer because he looks like he's dying of cancer. Yeah. He's acting like he's dying of cancer. Is it a joke? His family thinks it's a joke. Is, is that doctor's shoes? Were those doctors? They showed the shoes. Are they doctor's shoes? Do I know? You'll never know. Yeah. And I mean, it's it's I had those exact thoughts going through this of just I don't know what to believe in this movie that's directly here in front of me. I don't know. But here and we that's are. part of the joy of it, because it's like uh, the feud with Jerry Lawler. That never came out during Andy Kaufman's lifetime. Lawler only admitted that was a joke after Kaufman had died. Mm hmm. That never even came out. That was if, if you weren't up on the news because of how quickly this movie came out uh, compared to, to Kaufman's death, uh, you might that might have been news to you, depending on where you were. Like 
he died in 84 when we came out in 99 ah 15 years that you probably knew but like it's he never admitted to it while they were alive everyone Kaufman died and people still thought at the time that Lawler actually hated him and it wasn't just a bit if, if you go on YouTube and look up the video of their appearance together on Letterman it's exactly how it happens in the movie it's exactly he slaps him out of his chair live on Letterman and starts swearing did that is that something I could Google right now yeah, you can find it on YouTube, no problem. Hell yeah. Hell and so, yeah. It's, uh, it's not a movie of, like, huge concept. You know, this is very, very much so a biopic. You know, the, there's nothing, you know, huge to, to be learned, I think, necessarily. Uh, about That's anything more than uh, the introduction of the, the, the man's life. And, and it's it's happenings and to see a different expression of art and to try to understand that and grapple with it in some way. Uh, but it, it does such a good job of making you question what it means to laugh, like where you're getting your comedy from and how personal it needs to be. You know, because it reaches a point in the film where you recognize most of the shit isn't fucking funny, but it's fucking funny. I found myself not laughing at a lot of things and just keeling over at my desk at others. Yeah. Like like when uh when there's the the that show, I think no one of your or my generation has ever fucking heard of where they had Kaufman do the bit with um, Norm Macdonald. Uh, like threw yes. water at each other. Yeah, and then the, that's the actually tele- in real life. That was Michael Richards. Oh, was it really? Yeah. Oh, cool. Um, you know, the, the exec was like in on it. So he's like, all right, all right. You witnessed a happening. We're going to come back from commercial break and we're going to tell everybody what's going on. And then Kaufman just starts going. They want me to tell you it's fake. It wasn't fake. It was real. It was real. Like, that's just such a perfect bit. And it's not funny, but it's fucking hilarious. It's so fucking funny. It's there's no punchline, but it's fucking hilarious. Right. Right. No one at home gets the joke. No one. But you get the joke and you know, it's bullshit. And that's what just makes it so good. And there's so few instances where you really get to get that, you know, and Mm -hmm. I think that's what makes this movie such an enjoyable watch, because even though there's maybe not a, a, a huge life lesson to take out of it. I'm not saying that there isn't. I'm just saying it's not like a, a, a big one. Like we just kind of talked about certain aspects of The Last King of Scotland. Um, but there's it's such a unique viewing experience because of, well, the uniqueness of this man's life, but also the uniqueness of what is going to make you laugh at this. Mm-hmm. Oh, Andy Kaufman, you're a genius. And I swear to fucking God, if you Come back to life, which I don't think you will. I will. I will swear my oath to ye. Yeah. I don't know why I said that, but I did. Fucking, fucking, fucking icon. Yeah, I'm not really sure what else I really have to say about the, the, this movie. Obviously, we could talk about more of the gags. That's always fun. But sure. 
apparently this is funny, but apparently the uh, Elvis routine uh, was was only done as a treat for the people who stayed through all the bullshit. So what Kaufman hmm. would do was he would get up on stage and give just an awful show because it was funny for him. You know, people would leave and they'd boo. And that was fun for him. And after he got through the whole routine, if anybody was left, then he would do the Elvis impression, which apparently Elvis had actually seen his impression of him and said it was the best impression of him that anybody did. And so that was actually your like reward for sticking around. Hmm. Oh, another bit that had me in fucking tears is when he's at the college and he starts reading <laughs> F. Scott Fitzgerald's uh, uh, whatever the fucking book that was. What fucking book is that? Um, Great Gatsby. The Great Gatsby. Yeah. And he goes, oh, you guys want the record? You guys want the record? Oh, God, I'll play the record. And then it just picks up where he fucking left off. And then he, and then and then he goes, oh, so you don't want the record? And then just starts reading back and gets through the whole fucking book. Oh, my God. That fucking killed me. It's just it's genius. It's utter genius. He recorded himself on tape, pressing the vinyl, him reading the whole Great Gatsby just to bring with him as punishment on tour. That's amazing. That's fucking amazing. Mm -hmm. The forethought. The patience. Oh, my God. And that's just next level thinking. And it's just a level of genius that I just. I wish that we could see again, but because of the nature of the fact that repeating anything he did or, or coming close to repeating anything he did is just copying. You'll never see it again. Yeah. I Cal asked me after we watched the movie, like, can you think of any other performance artists? And the only guy I could really think of was Bobcat Goldswaith. Goldthwaite. I would say his name wrong. Um, and even then, he's not really. He was never did the stuff, kind of stuff that like Kaufman did. Like they're very different guys. But Bobcat was a wild dude. I don't know who that is. Bobcat Goldthwaite. Yeah, now he he directs a lot. Now he does uh, a lot of like stand up specials because um, he was a comedian. But he had a whole like wild guy persona, and he did like a really crazy voice. Uh, and then whenever if you ever see uh, like interviews with him where he wasn't doing the Bobcat thing. It was like it was like, you know, how Gilbert Gottfried's voice is fake. Yeah. Like, it'd be like that. Like, he'd talk a lot like this as Bobcat Goldthwaite. And he'd like flip chairs and like try to get himself, try to get himself kicked off of like uh, uh, shows and stuff. You know, like he'd be beyond uh, like Letterman or Leno or some shit and just act like a fucking animal. Uh, but then once the cameras turned off, he'd be like, hey, yeah, uh, yeah. What do you think of uh, what do you think of that? You know, like, was that was that good? you know is that all right uh so you know that was that was you know, that that's a level of performance art but but there'd be people who you know who got it and mm-hmm. i think part of the you know what made kaufman just like him was that nobody else knew nobody else got it so, you know 
Paul Giamatti's character would sometimes get it, but no one was in it 100 percent of the time. Right, which is just goes back to the nature of him and his performance. I don't that that was such a nothing statement. All right. I'm giving this movie a three and a half. Oh, this for me, this for me is an easy four. Yeah. Easy. Easy. Okay. Love this movie. Uh all right. Well, I guess we'll uh, we'll start wrapping up. Uh, Corbin Heller, what do you got for next week's picks? Uh, we'll try to actually do this shit in like a week, week and a half. We'll see. Uh, <laughs> but uh, what do you got? Uh, I am going with a film I was actually very excited to see that I kind of forgot about and never watched the 2020 film Supernova. I don't even know what the fuck that is. Uh, Stanley Tucci. And oh, the, the Tucci. The Tucci. Yo, the Tucci. The Tucci. You know, I love the Tucci. I know you love the Tucci. I don't know anyone who doesn't love the Tucci. Everybody loves all. All my friends love Tucci. Can't touch the Tucci, man. All can't, my friends can't touch love the Tucci. Ah, oh, Tooch. Fucking love Tooch. All right. All right. So that's Supernova starring uh, Firth and Tooch. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go with the 2021 film, the uh, or Last Night in Soho. So I, I picked Last King of Scotland. Now I'm going Last Night in Soho. Uh, my, my next movie will, will be like, uh, I don't know, like Last Duel. And, <laughs> and then I'll do like Last Night in Somerville. Um, uh, something, something. I'm just going to keep doing lasts. It'll all be lasts. Uh, but for now, the, my next film will be Last Night in Soho. So that's 2020's Supernova with the Tooch and uh, 2021's Last Night in Soho. Check them out before the we tooch. record. I'm sure you'll have plenty of time. We don't record very fucking often anymore. Uh, but in the meantime, if you'd like to follow the show on Instagram, if nope, on Twitter, we don't even have an Instagram. You can do so at uh, Big Screen Juice. We don't post from there fucking ever. So if you'd like to follow the show, follow Corwin on Twitter, you can do so at Corwin Heller. If you'd like to follow myself on Twitter, you can do so at Joshua D. Tracy. If you'd like to send emails to the show, you can do so at juicingthebigscreen at gmail.com. And until next time, folks, y'all have a good one. <laughs>